Hi everyone, Sarah Schaefer here. Thanks for checking out Art History Happy Hour. The episode that follows is back from when our podcast was called State of the Arts, and you can now find our episode blog and other resources, including a link to our Patreon page at arthistoryhappyhour.com. Hey everybody, welcome to State of the Arts, the podcast that explores how art and its history shape our world today. My name is Sarah Schaefer. And I'm Tina Rivers-Ryan. And we wanted to just start off by giving you a little bit of a background of why we decided to do this and what you can expect from us uh, in our upcoming podcast episodes. So actually the title, State of the Arts, um, we came up with that to try to convey that what we want to do is to look at art through today's news. So just to be totally clear up front, this is not a podcast about the state of the arts world, right? So that would cover things like, you know, what curators have just gotten hired, uh, what auction records are being broken. That's not what we want to do. What we want to do is really talk about works of art that are actually shaping current events today. This means that we're not taking your sort of traditional survey approach um, where in a textbook or website or an iTunes U course goes over a body of objects that are typically organized by culture or, and historical chronology. Instead, we want our episodes to reflect what's going on now, which means that this is less a survey um, than an ongoing dialogue between two colleagues and friends uh, unfolding in real time. So that survey course approach that Sarah's talking about, which we've um, actually both taught at the college level as well as both went through as undergrads, is, is designed to provide a body of knowledge to introduce students to an established canon of really important objects and artists. That approach definitely has its value, but what we're hoping is that the flexible format of a podcast will free us from having to explain right, what art is good or how art evolved over time. Um, instead, what we really want to do is talk about how art is relevant today. This is something that we talk about with each other, right? We do what we do for a reason. It's important, we think, um, to understanding the world around us. So this means that our audience is not really the typical audience that uh, would be interested in a survey format, right? And we're not making this podcast for students who are in school who are you know, looking for a study guide to help them cram for the next exam. Sorry, kid, you're on your own. Um, but what we want to do is, is make something for the person out there who maybe doesn't really um, need or want to learn the canon to go through Art History 101 again, but who hears stories about art and is really interested in what's going on, but ultimately doesn't really know how they're supposed to move beyond the very superficial discussion of works of art um, and visual images that you find in the news uh, towards a, a deeper engagement, a more profound experience of the works in question. And and rest assured, everyone, and that includes us, has had the experience of looking at a particular work of art and feeling overwhelmed and not knowing what to, what to do with it. Um, but as art historians, um, we don't just teach our students, or we try not to just teach our students the canon. We try not to just give them an overview of the masterpieces, but instead what we're really trying to do is, is teach our students how to look and how to engage with, with these objects. Partly because we just feel that art enriches our lives and partly because images are everywhere every day. We interact with them every day. 
And we think it's important for everyone, not just students in university, but everyone to know how to look at them and to understand them better. Of course, the the one drawback of the medium of the podcast, right? We can reach a bigger audience, but unfortunately, what we can't do is to show that audience images through uh, headphone sets, or at least not yet, anyway. So uh, we created a website, which is arthistory.today, so that we have a place to have a, a blog where um, you can go to see images and also links to images, so that you can look at art basically along with us. And it's really that experience of looking at art together that we're trying to recreate for you. Um, we've gone to countless museums and exhibitions together, and um, but we've also taken friends and families to museums, and we always tend to get the same response afterwards. People say, wow, that was great, you know, not to toot our own horns. Toot, toot. Um, so... You know, Tina and I talked about it, and we thought that what these people, what our friends and family really appreciate about about having that experience in museums and and looking at art with us is that we're we're trying to help them learn how to look and help them understand why what they're looking at matters for them and for and for our world, not just tell them you need to study. Michelangelo for X, Y, and Z reasons. Although you totally do need to study Michelangelo mm-hmm. for X, Y, and Z reasons. Um, so yeah, so that's what we're trying to do is we want to we want to take that same experience that we have when we take our friends and family to museums or to look at um, shows with us, and, and we want to share that with you guys um, using uh, works of art that are actually shaping our perspective on things right now. Okay, so let's launch into our first topic, which is one that's near and dear to my heart, being a born and raised Michigander. We're going to be talking today about the situation with the Detroit Institute of Arts. And you might have seen this in the news, talks talks of um, selling off the, the collection and what's going on there. And there's a lot of conflicting information and a lot of a lot of rumors and stuff going around and a lot of actually a lot of new news just in the past couple of weeks. So we're going to try to unravel some of that today. And I actually really like that we're starting with the discussion of the Detroit Institute of the Arts situation, uh, because it gets right to the to the fact that art is something that is incredibly important to our our public communities. So to start off, the subject really came to a head uh, just over a year ago on July 18th, 2013, when the city of Detroit filed for Chapter 9 bankruptcy. And they're actually the largest municipal uh, district to file for bankruptcy in American history. So that was pretty major event to begin with. This was largely the result of huge amounts of debts um, that Detroit had. It's estimated between 18 and $20 billion in debts, and that's coming a lot from city pension agreements. So municipal workers and pensions that they were guaranteed as, as part of their contracts, union contracts and so forth. And that has created crippling debt for Detroit. So in the in the months after Detroit declared bankruptcy, one of the possible solutions that was raised, uh, particularly by some of the creditors and debtors of the city of Detroit, was the possibility of selling the Detroit Institute of Arts collections. These collections are actually owned by the city of Detroit. So some of these people looked to looked to these collections and thought, hey, there's a big trove of money. Why don't we sell that off to pay down our debt? 
it's sort of important to realize that this is an unusual situation here in America where the city, a municipality, a government actually owns the art. Most of our museums are set up. For example, if you look at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, all of the works at the Met are technically owned by the board of trustees who hold them in trust for the public, right? So they legally own these works, but the idea is they can't just, you know, take a painting home and put it on their own living room wall. Um, so the model that Detroit has is actually much closer to the system set up in, in Europe, um, going, you know, back to the, the founding of the, you know, sort of encyclopedic museums, you know, in places like Paris, um, where the monarchy, you know, set up their first sort of private collections, which then eventually became public institutions, um, you know, after some heads were chopped off. And so Detroit finds itself in a position that, for example, the Met will never be put in, or the Detroit Institute of Arts finds itself in a position that the Met will never be put in, right, that most American museums will never be put in. Right. And one of the interesting things about this is the fact that this is a problem that is actually endemic to the DIA's history. Um, to make things clear, DIA is the acronym for Detroit Institute of Arts. Um, so there have been a number of instances in the past when the DIA, ha DIA has found itself in the situation of being problematically tied to the city's finances. First thing we're going to do is go back and look at the history of the DIA and see how it kind of got into this situation. And while we're doing that, we'll talk about some of its important works and, and why this is an important collection and something that needs to be talked about. Before there was the DIA, there was the Detroit Museum of Art, and this was founded on March 25th, 1885. And as the auto industry grew, obviously Detroit's, the industry that we think of when we think of Detroit is the auto industry, and it went through a big boom in the early 20th century. Um, as that grew and Detroit's economy grew and, and a lot of wealth was, was generated throughout the city, the museum began to acquire a lot more objects, more than than its original building that one on East Jefferson Avenue could hold. In January 1919, Mayor James Cousins appointed the first Arts Commission of Detroit, which would basically form the Detroit Institute of Arts. At that, at that point, the name was changed from the Detroit Mu Museum of Art to the Detroit Institute of Arts, and that was a really important moment um, because the, the Detroit Museum of Art ceded its holdings, everything, to Detroit. And what that meant was that, as we kind of mentioned already, the financial stakes of the museum was directly tied to the city itself and the economy of the city. So the current Detroit Institute of Arts building, the cornerstone of that building was laid on April 29th, 1924. And at the, at the ceremony for the laying of the cornerstone, the head of, of the commission that was in charge of the DIA stated, quote, we are here today to crown these accomplishments by laying the cornerstone of this building, which shall testify that our true ambition is not mechanical production only. This but supplies the opportunity with which we shall gather around us the finer things to which we aspire and give tangible evidence to the world that Detroit is a city of enlightenment and progress where we claim the best that civilization offers in order that our lives may be fuller and richer and contribute to the true betterment of future generations. Yeah, and so this idea that a, that a museum is actually um, not simply a, a sort of mausoleum for historical artifacts and is also not simply a place for aesthetic experience, but is in fact um, a, a place of enlightenment associated with progress 
that will lead to the betterment of future generations. I mean, what he's talking about here is, is a museum is a really important cultural institution, right? That, that in fact, the, the future health of our society depends on the kinds of education that one can receive from a museum, whether it's an aesthetic education or um, uh, an, an education in, uh, in history, right? Which is something that Sarah and I are both really interested in. So today the DIA houses over 65,000 objects and it's an encyclopedic collection. And what that means is that it aspires to bring together objects from all geographical and, and historical moments. So actually this, this concept of the encyclopedic museum is, is really an important one, um, that there's been uh, a lot of debate about the value of the encyclopedic museum. Uh, what you see increasingly is a trend towards um, what we might call a monographic museum, a museum uh, devoted to n- not simply a specific culture, but even just a single artist, right? So an example of this would be the Musée Picasso in, in Paris. So um, what is what is gained in having this very specific focus is, of course, that you get to study a single artist's career in depth. But what is lost is the sense of how art has evolved over time, how art uh, continues a dialogue with its past, and also you lose the the cross-cultural associations, right? You, you can no longer put objects from different cultural contexts next to each other um, and, and think about, you know, is there such a thing as universality in art, right? Is there a universal impulse, for example, towards depicting the human body? Um, you know, how do different cultures, you know, depict and experience grief and loss, right? So these kinds of questions you can ask when you're walking through the Met and you've got art from all different periods and all different places around the world. Um, and so that's an advantage of a museum like the Detroit Institute of Arts. It's one of the reasons it's so important. So being an encyclopedic museum, the Detroit Institute of Arts has a number of really significant works from really different time periods, really different uh, historical moments. Two of the, what one appraiser has claimed is, are the most valuable works in their collection are Peter Bruegel, The Elders, The Wedding Dance from about 1566, and a self-portrait by Van Gogh from 1887. So, you know, those are just works that one appraiser says based on market values and, you know, what's how things are selling right now. Those are the works that would probably fetch the most money on, on the auction market. But that's not to say that they're necessarily the most culturally valuable or historically valuable. But probably for many people visiting the DIA, the highlight of the collection is something that's actually part of the building. The set of murals painted uh, in 1932 and 1933 by the Mexican muralist Diego Rivera, um, and these these murals are known as the Detroit Industry Murals. It's a series of, of, of 27 images, many of which depict the Ford Motor Company, um, but there are a number of other symbolic and, and allegorical images as well. These murals are just astounding. They take up the entire... Um, central court and what used to be called the garden court but now it's called the Rivera court. Diego Rivera and his wife Frida Kahlo actually traveled to the River Rouge plant in Dearborn, Michigan, which is a suburb of Detroit, to do research and, and document the activity in the factory there um, so that Diego Rivera could could accurately portray this factory. He also paid homage not just to the, the car industry, but some of the some of the other industries that were prominent in Detroit in the in the early twentieth century, including 
uh, the medical and pharmaceutical industries. He has an homage to aviation uh, in one of the upper panels as well. One of my one of my favorite aspects of it is um, on the east wall in the center top panel. Um, there shows a sort of child in, enclosed in the the in the roots of a plant and there are different layers of geological strata that surround it. And each one of those layers is actually accurate to the geology of Michigan. And as I said, being a, being a born Michigander, I, I, I appreciate that level of, of, of detail and accuracy to um, the actual terrain of the state. Yeah, so so what Sarah is describing about the the nature of the Diego Rivera panels that again are, are maybe the most famous of all the works of art at the DIA um, is is the reason why the story of dismantling and selling apart the DIA becomes very complex. They literally are on the walls. Um, Rivera painted using a technique called. Uh, fresco, which is the same way that Michelangelo painted the chapel, uh, the, the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, um, where you are painting into wet plaster. And as the plaster dries, uh, the, the paint dries with it. Um, so it's literally part of the walls of this museum. So what would it mean to, for example, uh, remove these frescoes from the architectural context, right? It is possible to saw a fresco. You just take the plaster off the wall um, or you can transfer it chemically. Um, obviously, these are not great things to do from the standpoint of conservation. It is possible, though. Um, but they're also site-specific, which is a term we use to describe works of art that deliberately refer to their local context, right? So you know, these are about the Ford Motor Company. These are about the, the literal land of Detroit around them. And so to take these works of art, you know, if they were to ever be removed, for example, the fact that, that they are part of this institution that is at least, you know, um, you know, in part being sold off or dismantled, right, uh, raises a lot of really difficult questions. Earlier this year, um, the Diego Rivera murals were actually placed on the national list of historic landmarks. So very little can happen to them, luckily. Yeah, despite what's going on with with the DIA building and the collections and everything, nothing can happen to those murals. So that that was very good news to hear earlier in this year. Well, that being said, we can just kind of skip now to um, what's what's been leading up to the current situation with the DIA. Since the city of Detroit owns the collections, owns the building, and is responsible for was originally responsible for the funding of of the DIA and you know that was fine at a time where Detroit was um, very prosperous uh, as it went into decline that became much more problematic so in the Great Depression there was a point where the DIA was under threat of being closed um, so its hours were cut and an admission fee was was put into place for the first time Things kind of stabilized after that, but especially from the 1970s, where where Detroit really started to to decline and kind of hasn't really even come back from that at this point. Um, there were a, a number of times when the state of Michigan actually stepped in and and took up um, uh, took up the cause and 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 provided funding for the DIA so it so it could remain open and 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 still cater to the needs of of Detroit and the surrounding areas. 
there have been a number of measures taken by the DIA and by by the city and 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 local authorities to to try and stabilize the DIA situation. Um, they launched a fundraising campaign uh, in 1998, hoping to raise 320 million dollars in 10 years that would um, provide a substantial portion of of the money needed to run the to keep the DIA running. Um, but then 2008 hit and and we have this countrywide recession. After that, budgets were cut again. Um, but luckily, voters in in Wayne, Oakland, and Macomb County, which are some of the some of the Detroit counties, passed a millage that would would give seventy percent of the museum's annual annual budget for ten years. So that was good. And the citizens of those counties get to go to the DIA for free. So that's nice as well. So in July. 2013, the city of Detroit declared bankruptcy, and um, it was pretty much immediately after that that people started talking about the possibility of of selling off works of art to to pay down some of this enormous debt that the city has had and still has. Um, so in August, the city actually brought in one of the most famous auction houses in the world, Christie's, and uh, to appraise the works that had been actually bought by the city. So this is something that we need to tease out a little bit. Um, there are many different ways that museum museums get works of art. Um, in some cases, people give them give them stuff from their own collections. In some cases, people give money and say, buy what you want with it. Um, but in the initial stages of the DIA, when all of their money was coming from the city, their, that money was going to acquire works of art. So technically, those works, and it's a group of about 2,800 works, had actually been bought with city funds, not works that had been donated by specific people or had been bought with private money. Those works were appraised by, by Christie's Auction House to see how much money they could potentially fetch on the market. And in December, they released an estimate saying that it would be between $454 million and $867 million for those just under 3,000 works. Once... Christie's was brought in to appraise the collection. That was when people started to get pretty nervous about this, about this possibility. It made it seem like they were really seriously considering um, this, the idea of selling off these works of art to to pay down Detroit's debt. And Detroit's emergency financial manager Kevin Orr, initially when this idea came about, said that there were this was not this was not something that they were seriously considering that the city of Detroit was was seriously considering but because of chapter 9 bankruptcy and I'm not a financial lawyer so I can't really speak to this but he said because of the the particularities of chapter 9 bankruptcy he couldn't say that it was definitively off the table but he has um uh tried to organize ways of of allowing the DIA to find its own funding and keep its collections while dealing with some of the problem of the city's debt as well. So the idea he came up with, which is called the Grand Bargain, in essence is that if the museum raises $100 million and is able to get a number of private foundations to give an additional $330 million, and then the state of Michigan adds another $100 million, all that money would go to pay down municipal workers' pensions and to the creditors to try and pay off some of this debt. 
And in response, the city would transfer the DIA's property to the nonprofit that runs it. So the city would not would not own those works of art and they would not be in charge of them anymore. Um, so that's that has been a project that's that's been in the works for a while, but a number of these creditors, um, a number of the, the city's creditors have criticized the plan, um, saying that it's it's favoring the pensions. It's it's it, the creditors would still lose a lot of money in this deal. So, just a few weeks ago in July, um, the New York uh, appraisal firm Artvest they were brought in to appraise the additional works in the collection that were not bought with city funds. So we had said that it was 2,800 works that had been bought by city money. So this would be the additional whatever 63,000 works. Um, that were part of the DIA collections that were not bought with city money. And their their estimate came out to 2.8 billion, between 2.8 billion and 4.6 billion dollars. That's what those additional 63,000 works uh, were worth on the market. And I know it might seem really strange that there's, you know, a, a $2 billion variance between the high and the low estimates. But, you know, the art market is a fickle market. And it's a, it's, it's a, I think a little bit of a bubble right now. It's a seen as a really safe place to invest your money um, compared to you know other kinds of um, products like you know, stocks um, that you know people are a little bit afraid of. Um, and uh, it's also a great place to launder money, actually. So um, you see a lot of money being poured in from new and emerging markets uh, where shady things are going on. Um, but it's not exactly, you know, the art market is not exactly like a typical commodities market um, because art objects are also the um, the object of very subjective responses and subjective evaluations, right? Um, so it's price, you know, the price of a given painting can fluctuate depending on, you know, if it goes to auction and there's just somebody who's absolutely in love with it, right? I mean, it can fetch way more than expected. You, They can't necessarily predict. I mean, there's, I'm sure analysts who spend a lot of time trying to do just that, but they can't necessarily predict, right, whether or not there's somebody out there who just really loves uh, this particular painting and needs to have it. And at the same time, part of what Artvest was saying was that the, the strengths of the DIA's collections, what, what makes this collection so important those those kinds of objects are not doing super well on the art market right now so the fact that they don't have a huge you know asian collection they don't they have a growing contemporary collection but it's not it's not really their strength at this moment that's the stuff that's getting sold and, and and that's the stuff that's that's fetching really huge prices right now so right there's a there's definitely a when we talk about value in the art market you know there's not necessarily a correlation between quality and and price right and so demand. it's it's about demand and, and that means that the market is subject to trends so right now you know an art object by the very much alive Jeff Koons could fetch a lot more than the art object you know by an old master who's been dead for hundreds of years right. um, just because it's trendier and that's what people want on their living room walls at this point um, or on their living room floors more accurately in the case of Koons <laughs> Um, so that's one thing going on. And then the other issue going on, um, is, uh, that, you know, because it is a, it is a market, it is subject to the tension between supply and demand. And so if the DIA deaccessions, what did you say? 60,000? They have about 65,000 works total and 2,800 of those are 
were bought by the city. Um, that's a lot of art to hit the market at once. And so you could see suddenly prices drop as there are lots of different options for collectors. And, you know, it's important to point out that it's not private collectors or it's not just private collectors who would be getting into this game. Museums also would want to get into this game and try to snap up stuff. It's just they have slightly more limited purse strings unless a benefactor comes along and says, you know, I'll buy this for you on your behalf. I mean, another problem with this idea of selling things off is the fact that in the cases of people donating things, they may have done so with the requirement that it stay in the museum's collection in perpetuity. And so the the reason that the first appraisal was of those works that were just bought with city funds is that they they're not under that same legal requirement and they would be easier to sell off than than things that were donated by specific people with the with the the caveat that they have to remain you know in the museum's collection with this little plaque saying that i gave it the the problem with the the fluctuations in the market and the variability of the market not knowing how much specific works are going to get despite their being appraised at really high values that was actually seen as really favoring the DIA when this announcement came out of this appraisal um from Artvest and the possibility that it could the the whole collection could fetch as, as little as 80 850 million dollars um for for people who are opposed to selling the DIA collection, this was a way of saying, see, it wouldn't actually raise that much money to pay down the debt. It wouldn't raise as much money as, as we're thinking that it would, so it ultimately wouldn't have as, as positive as an effect on, on the economy and on the debt situation um, as, as people are claiming that it will. And, and it's also a cost-benefit analysis, right? It's like, yeah, if we, if we were able to raise money, enough money to pay off all of the debts and cover all of the pensions, then yeah, maybe it would be worth it. But is it really worth it to lose this cultural heritage, to lose what took a century to build? Um, and frankly, could never be remade, right? I mean, you'll never, they would never have enough money to buy either these works back or to buy works of these caliber and to assemble this collection again. Is it worth giving that up for what is only sort of a short-term part-time solution? In terms of keeping the DIA collection intact and part of, and part of Detroit is that it can actually be a, a positive element in the growth of its culture and economy that having that institution that is such a, a, a monument draws people in and, and kind of creates this cultural base around it. And many people argue that that's, that's an important part of, of building up a community. I mean, we can trace that in the history of New York, where the artists go, the, the capitalists soon follow after. Slow Soho. And Chelsea. And Chelsea. And Dumbo. Yep. So. And soon the rest of New York. Exactly. So that's one line of reasoning, and it would seem pretty obvious. Well, no, you know, like even from a financial perspective, it doesn't necessarily make sense to give up a huge asset for um, such a small financial gain. But on the other hand, we're talking about people's pensions, right? right? And, you know, these are people's livelihoods. And we're talking about, you know, potentially forcing um, people, you know, from middle class comfort into poverty. Right. And this is something, this is a criticism that's been pretty regularly asserted against the DIA and similar institutions is that they're really catering to a specific audiences, particularly suburban white audiences, as opposed to the largely black poor audiences in the city of Detroit. So one of the cr criticisms, um, one of the arguments 
in favor of of selling the collection, as just as Tina said, that money would would be going to secure the 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 income of of poor retired people um, in the in the city of Detroit, and that is an important consideration and something that definitely shouldn't just be um, shirked to the side. No, absolutely. But, you know, on the flip side, you know, we, we have to understand that, you know, the or we have to have a conversation at least about what the value of art is. And, you know, part of it has to do with uh, its, you know, monetary value. Part of it has to do with its pedagogic value, right? It teaches us about our own history. Um, its aesthetic value. It provides comfort, right, to people. Um, so we need to have that conversation and to ask whether, you know, this museum is still capable of providing a, a value to not only the white suburban community, but also to um, sort of historically underserved communities. Uh, and, you know, it's a museum like the Detroit Institute of Arts that is encyclopedic and, and that is, you know, um, one of these major metropolitan museums that is perhaps best capable of, of serving the needs of these communities. And, you know, museums recently have done a really good job of developing outreach programs and, and trying to find, you know, new ways, whether it's, you know, special programming or special ticket incentives or what have you, of bringing, um, you know, bringing new communities and new audiences into the museum. And then, you know, we have to, you know, have, I think, elevate the conversation to, to realize that it's not simply aesthetic, um, you know, education that's being offered here, but also uh, an education on what we call cultural capital, right? So um, that it's not simply, you know, that the humanities are good for the soul and that art is good for the soul and that everyone has a soul and therefore everyone can benefit but also in American culture, you know, it, it's very hard to reach the upper echelons um, of society without being able to have that cocktail party conversation about art. You know, even if your appreciation is only on a very superficial level, art is one of those ways that elites can distinguish themselves. And so if we're talking about economic mobility and ways for, um, you know, for example, to help lift the underserved, underprivileged communities of Detroit out of um, you know, systemic poverty that just reproduces itself from generation to generation, maybe an education in the arts is one tool. I mean, there are obviously other tools that are very important, like perhaps more important, like, you know, sound kindergarten education. Right. Um, We're not saying we should turn all poor people into art historians. No, but um, I was recently told by one of my um, friends who went to MIT that there was actually a class that was held in MIT to teach MIT undergraduates table manners. Wow. Because MIT as an institution understood that part of closing a deal with a venture capitalist is knowing which fork to use when he takes you to the $500 a plate dinner. Right. So that's what social... I would not perform well at that. (laughs) Probably not me either. Um, But, you know, there is an expectation that one should be sort of educated in in the arts. Um, So, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of... Yeah, there's just a conversation that needs to happen, I think. And there's no easy answers. Right. So... Before we wrap up, I do just want to mention a, a new piece of news that um, that came out just yesterday on July 28th. This is coming from, from the New York Times. So we had mentioned with the Art Vest appraisal 
that it was it was relatively low and um the the proponents of the dia saw this as a positive thing um in in favor of of not selling off the collection well one of the one of the creditors actually of their own initiative went and hired a different uh, uh appraisal firm and that firm which was the victor wiener associates um based in new york city uh, appraised the collection at $8.5 billion, so significantly more than what Art Vest said that it would be worth. And um, it is expected that Art Vest, and I assume that this other appraisal firm, will be expert witnesses in the bankruptcy trials that are due to start in August. So perhaps we'll have an update on the situation uh, down the road, hopefully with good news for somebody. Stay tuned. If you'd like to learn more about us or anything we've covered today, you can check out our website. It's www.arthistory.today. And if you want to find us on social media, we're on facebook.com slash arthistorytoday and on Twitter at arthisttoday, A-R-T-H-I-S-T-T-O-D-A-Y. You can also email us at arthisttoday, that's A-R-T-H-I-S-T-T-O-D-A-Y, at gmail.com. 